Please open your Bibles to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Over the last three months, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and it's been quite, quite a journey so far. We've seen God making Himself known to His people as He remembers His covenant, as He sees the suffering of His people, as He calls Moses, as He sends the plagues, as He leads His people, Israel, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and destroys their Egyptian oppressors. And since Exodus 15, the Israelite people, God's people, they've reached the wilderness, the space between the land of oppression and the land of promise. They've already been delivered, but they have not yet reached the promised land. And God has brought them here because he has much more to show them and to teach them. And he's brought us here as well because he has much to teach us and to show us. Now, this morning's passage may feel like a bit of an interruption. We're going to come across three, actually two scenes of Israel's wilderness journey. And these scenes, they're, they're actually vital to Exodus and what God's doing in Exodus. The first half of Exodus, it speaks of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. It begins with the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and God remembers his people and rescues his people. And through this work of deliverance, God is making himself known to his people. But as we've made our way through this first half of Exodus, God hasn't just set out to make himself known to his people. His purpose has been much, much broader and greater than that. Yes, God is making himself known to his people, but moreover, he's making himself known to all the world. Our benediction at the end of, of our corporate worship this morning is going to be from Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. It's a familiar passage. It's known as the Great Commission. Here Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In this passage in the Great Commission, we see that God's purpose goes beyond concern for just the nation of Israel. God's heart is for all people, that all people might know Him, all nations. This is the heart of missions, that all the nations praise God. But sometimes we can fall into thinking that this idea, seeing God's heart for the nations, is one that just comes up in the New Testament. We think about the book of Acts and how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we see this progression. But this idea that God's heart is for the nations is not just a New Testament idea. This idea courses through Scripture. God's concern is for all peoples. We see this in David's song in Psalm 63, verse 3. He cries, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And this idea has been evident throughout Exodus as well. God isn't just making himself known to his people, he is making himself known to all people. For example, we see this in Exodus 9, verse 16. And here God is telling Moses that he is going to be sending a seventh plague. This time it's hail. And he says, you know, I could have wiped out Egypt by now. But tell Pharaoh this. This is what he says to Moses. For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose in the Exodus was to make his power known so that all might know that he is the God above all gods. And as we've made our way with Israel out of the bondage of slavery across the Red Sea and into wilderness, all these incredible scenes, they culminate in our passage today. Our passage today is actually a, a climax of the first half of Exodus. It culminates in this scene, these scenes where we see a picture of the response of the nations to God. 
And before we uh, jump into the passage, would you bow your heads and pray once again with me? Father, we come to you to exalt your name, for you alone are worthy to be praised. And we ask that we would have uh, hearts that would, that would hear what you have to, to say to us, that would be conformed to your will for us. As we look to these, these glorious truths about who you are and about how you work in the world, Lord, help us to uh, have an expansive view of who you are as we look to your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning we're going to uh, walk through this passage looking at these two different scenes that we're presented with. Uh, so we're going to kind of take them separately. So first, scene one is Israel and Amalek. Let's read together in Exodus 17, verse 8 through verse 16. This is the word of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now here we read of Israel's first military encounter, their first battle. And God, in His wisdom and in His kindness, He waited until this moment for the people of Israel to face this kind of opposition. But why now? Now I want to highlight two reasons why now. Why does this opposition come now? Do you remember when the people first set off from their captivity? When they leave the bondage of the Egyptians... When I preached that passage in Exodus 13 and 14, I highlighted how God sent them the long way around. The, the promised land was right there, and God sends them over this way. Well, it says this in Exodus 13, 17. And we see that, that this long way wasn't just to teach Israel how to trust them, which it was. It was also to show his care for them. Exodus 13, 17 says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knew that war at that point would be too great of a burden for this people. So he took them another way. He took them the long way out of care for his people. He knew that they couldn't, what they could handle and when they could handle it. And this battle with Amalek is coming at just the right time for this people. But I also think there's another reason why God waited until now for Israel to face military opposition. One of the things we've seen over the last two chapters is God's sovereign care for his people as he provides for their needs. So he gives them water to drink and food to eat, providing them all they need for each and every day. But we've also seen how quick 
God's people can be to forget his gracious provision. The people of Israel, they forget who God is. They forget what God has done. And this reveals a far deeper problem. This is something we just looked at last week. We've seen that it's all too easy to be more aware of your, your temporal circumstances than the eternal God who controls them. The deeper problem we have to confront is within us. It's not outside of us. It's not our circumstances that need fixing first. It's right here inside of us. Had Israel faced this external opposition first, they could have been left thinking that their greatest threat, their greatest challenge, was outside of them. It was the circumstances they faced. But this was never their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was always right there with them. Right there with them as they set up their camp. Right there with them as they went out and gathered manna in the morning. As they traveled from place to place. Their biggest problem was them. And so, prior to this encounter with Amalek, we have three straight scenes that highlight their weakness, their tendency to forget, to grumble, to doubt God. And God wants to teach His people that their greatest opposition comes from within the camp, not outside of it. So God delays this battle out of care for His people. They weren't ready for it, and in His wisdom, they needed to know where their greatest opposition was. But now, just a few weeks into this journey into the wilderness, external opposition does come. And it comes in the form of Amalek. Now, Amalek is a name we come across first in Genesis 36, verse 12. He is the grandson of Esau. Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. Their father was Isaac, whose father was Abraham. And Esau's grandson, Amalek, they they grew into this nomadic people that made a living off of attacking other people. And here the text says they came and fought, which seems to imply that they they really sought this out. Moses tells again of this event later in Deuteronomy. He's looking back, Deuteronomy 25, and he writes this. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. The people of Amalek came to Israel at this point of weakness in order to take advantage of them. They knew of God but had no fear of Him. So the Amalekites, the people of Amalek, they come and fight with Israel. Moses tells Joshua, he says, choose men. That's probably not because he had so many people to choose from and he needed to kind of pare down his forces. It was probably because he had nobody. It's like, go find some guys that can fight for us. And then Moses makes the comment that he's going to go stand on top of the hill the next day with the staff of God in his hand. Now remember this staff? This is the same staff that struck the water. I mean, struck the rock and out came water. This is the same staff that was stretched over the Red Sea and saw the waters part for Israel to walk through. And the waters come back over on the Egyptians. This is the same staff that touched the Nile River and it turned into blood. This is the same staff that Moses threw down on the ground and it turned into a serpent. All throughout Israel's exodus, exodus, this this staff, it represents God's power and God's presence. So Moses is going to go out and stand on top of this hill holding a symbol of God's power and presence. Now in this first military encounter for Israel, you'd expect the narrative to focus on the battlefield, right? I mean, like, it's a battle scene, so let's see what's going on there. But it does just the opposite. All the attention in our passage is really centered on what takes place on that hill. 
when the staff of God is raised, Israel is winning. And when the staff of God is lowered, Amalek is prevailing. Now, I read this and I kind of wonder, like, how did this all play out? Like, when did Moses know that he was going to need to have the staff raised in order to win the battle? Or when did he find out that this was the case? I mean, was he up there and just like happened to put it up? And then how long does it take him to figure out, oh, we're winning, so this is great. And then he puts his hand down. It's like, oh man, guys are dying. I need to put my hand back up. Like, I don't, how did all that work out? We don't know, and God doesn't really make it clear. Then you have to wonder about these two other guys that go up there, Aaron, his brother, and her. How did they know what's going on? How long did it take them to figure out? And at what point were they like, oh man, we need to get a rock for Moses to sit on? Did Moses ask for this? I mean, like, there's all these questions we don't, we don't know. We don't know the answer to these questions. And the reality is, we don't need to know. Because this story is not primarily about the posture of Moses or the help of Aaron and her, although there are things we can learn about both of those things. It's about God's power and God's judgment. This story is about the power, God's judgment against the nations who oppose them. The power he brings in his judgment. Amalek was overwhelmed by Israel, not because of any skill that Israel possessed, but because this was the Lord's battle. They were overwhelmed because of God's power, and God has the power to protect his people. Now, as Moses stands and sits up on that hill with the staff of God raised in his hand, we should be reminded of Moses standing over the Red Sea with the staff in his hand as the waters collapse onto the Egyptians. In both scenes, God executes judgment on his enemies through Moses. Now, the scene concludes with the Lord telling Moses to, to write these things down so that people will not forget his protection and his judgment. God has strong words for Amalek in verse 14. God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God is saying that his judgment is ultimate. One day it will be full and complete and final. You see, this, this conflict between Amalek and Israel is, is really pointing back to conflict that, that goes even further. Descendant of Amalek's descendant of Esau. So you've got this conflict between Jacob and Esau. You go back even further, and that represents a conflict between Cain and Abel. You go back further, and that represents a conflict between God and Satan. And God is saying, I will overwhelm my enemies. I have complete and final rule over all my enemies. So Moses responds to this scene by building an altar, a memorial. And he gives it this unusual name, the Lord is my banner. Now the word used for my banner, it refers to a signal pole in a military context. It's, it's the signal pole, it's the flag that everyone looks to in order to, to rally together and to understand what their, their identity is, to understand the purpose of why they're fighting. It's a reminder of who they are. And the staff that Moses held up during the battle acted in just this way for Israel. Moses' words here point to the fact that this battle wasn't between Israel and Amalek. It was between God and his enemies. The nations that oppose God are overwhelmed under his divine judgment. This is the first scene. We see God's judgment on the nations as they hear of God and rebel against him as they attack his people. Now we're going to look at scene number two. This is Jethro and Moses. We're going to read the chapter that talks about this, chapter 18. This is the word of God, beginning in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace." So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of God. Now, just as an, as an aside, that was kind of a long passage, 18, 1 through 27. One thing that Larry and I are, are committed to making central of all of our gatherings is the reading of God's Word. When, when you come to Grace Church, you're going to hear us pray a lot because we're people of prayer. You're going to hear us read the Bible a lot. Because when we come up to preach, like, I don't have anything to say to you other than what's in this book. That should be all I'm, all I'm saying to you. And that's the only authority that, that I stand on. Uh, anything else, you can just take it or leave it. But we gather together, we open God's Word together, we read God's Word together so that you can be looking and listening, saying, 
Yeah, that's in here. I see that. This is truth. Or you could be saying, I don't see that. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. And you can ask about it or you can confront me about it. Either way. But that's how we should be listening. We should be listening with that kind of discernment. And so we take time to read through that whole passage because that's the most important thing I'm going to say right there. Those 27 verses, those eight verses we read before it. Because this is God speaking to us. So we've read through that. And this scene comes rather abruptly after Israel's victory in battle. Jethro, he comes back on the scene. Now, we haven't heard from him since Genesis, I mean, Exodus chapter 4, when Moses comes to him after serving him for 40 years and asks if he can go back to Egypt. So Moses, he had, he had fleed Egypt. He, he ends up in this region. He meets Midian, uh, Jethro's daughters, and uh, he ends up setting up camp with them for 40 years and, and taking care of, of sheep. And then God calls him to go back to Egypt and, and deliver his people. So it, when, after God tells him that, Jethro goes, I mean, Moses goes back to Jethro and says, hey, can I go back to Egypt? And Jethro admirably, graciously tells him, go in peace. Now Jethro, he's brought back into the narrative here and is identified first as a priest of Midian. Now we're not exactly what this role, we're not exactly sure what this role entailed. But we do know that Jethro in some way represented his people's gods as a priest. And Jethro was also of Midian. Now the Midianites, they're no strangers to Scripture. They are the ones who bought and sold Joseph in Genesis 37. They were defeated by Gideon in Judges 7. When we see the Midianites in Scripture, they are they're always Gentiles. They're a people that's outside of God's people. Now coming off right off of Exodus 17 in the battle with Amalek, we get this idea of a contrast being drawn between Amalek, the wicked foreigner, and Jethro, a righteous foreigner. It seems that Moses was really intentional about making this contrast between these two sections. It's not, not apparent at first glance, but when we go back and look through, it's all over the place. So while Amalek came and fought, Jethro came and greeted and the similarities go on from there. In both sections, we see men that are chosen for a certain task. In both sections, Moses sits in order to judge. In both sections, Moses requires assistance. These, these sections, they complement each other. They draw a contrast between each other. Moses was very purposeful in placing these two scenes right next to each other. Amalek represented God's judgment on the nations. And Jethro represents God's blessing to the nations. Like Amalek, Jethro, the priest of Midian, he's a representative of something, and he's a representative of how the nations respond to God. As God makes himself known, how, how does the nations respond? We saw one response in Amalek, we see another in Jethro. But as we read that passage, that's not the only way Jethro is identified. In fact, it's not even the main way. You may or may not have noticed that when we read, Jethro is referred to Moses' father-in-law. Hopefully you noticed that because the passage references it 13 times. So it's like, I mean, we're reading Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and it goes on 11 more times. Like, we get the point already, Moses. He was your father-in-law. Why is it so important that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law? I think it shows us something about how God's people are to relate to others. You see, even though they are called to be a holy people for God's glory, they are, not to call, they are not called to treat all people like they treated the Amalekites. 
Only those who come in opposition to God are they to oppose. But God's people have not escaped the responsibility of relationship and respect. So we see Moses throughout chapter 18 showing great honor and respect to Jethro. Most poignantly, we see this at the end of chapter 18. We see it when Moses sits down to to judge God's people, and he ends up sitting there all day. Now, when I read this, like the feeling that I get is like, I've got to go to the MVA. And this is probably what some of the people of Israel were feeling. So you show up, you take a number, and then you wait. Now, when I'm in this situation, I normally distract myself. Well, it's not really distracting myself. I start doing math. I look up on the little screen with the numbers. It's like, all right, uh, 36 is up there, and I'm sitting here holding 81. So it's like, all right, I've got 45 to go. So then I start looking at, all right, how many desks are open right now? And then I start figuring out, like, all right, what's the average time that each person is there? So then I kind of figure, all right, I'll probably only be here for a couple more hours. Like, all right, now we'll deal with it. And as the hours go on and on, it's just, I'm always redoing the calculations. Oh, man, that person was there half an hour. They threw off the averages terribly. I got to, like, refigure that. And after several hours of this, finally get out of there, I feel exhausted. Now, this is probably what it was like for Israel. Only instead of five desks being open or whatever, only one was open, and it was Moses. And instead of 45 people in front of me, there was hundreds of people in front of me. And instead of someone trying to get an ID with, with some paperwork they brought with them, someone was trying to settle a dispute with a cow they brought with them. I mean, just think of the, the madness of this scene. And this is where Jethro comes, and Jethro says, he's like, Moses, this is crazy. You can't do this, and your people can't do this. And I love how blunt Jethro is, where he says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. <laughs> so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he provides wise counsel, wise advice to Moses. He tells him that you can't do it all on your own. And listen to what Jethro emphasizes in verse 19 to 20. Jethro says, now obey my voice. But I actually do have to hold on there because if my father-in-law said that, now obey my voice, I don't think I would have reacted like Moses reacted. Uh, I, I know the culture was different from ours and that people generally showed greater respect to others, particularly in the realm of family. But his father-in-law just said, obey my voice. It's like if I'm parenting one of my kids and my father-in-law was to say to me, all right, now obey my voice. What you're doing is not good. It's like, hold up. Like, who's, who's the dad here? But that's not how Moses responds. It's remarkable how he responds. Here he is, the instrument of deliverance for these two or three million people. He is their leader, their judge, their mediator, standing between God and Israel. And when Jethro says, now obey my voice, Moses listens. So Jethro says, verses 19 and 20, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Jethro tells Moses, you know, you're still responsible for certain things. You must teach the people how to live. You must tell them the way they should go. You must instruct the people so they know what to do. This is your job as a leader. And Jethro goes on from there, and he tells Moses to, to delegate his authority. And it's not based on birth like we see often in the, New, in the Old Testament. It's not like assign this task to such and such a tribe. 
but it's based on qualification. Jethro says this in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Now notice how this so effectively prepares the people for the giving of the law, which is going to come up in the ensuing chapters. God gives us what we need when we need it. Because he's about to give his people the law, God provides through Jethro a way for this law to take effect at every level of society. The thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, that's not literal numbers. Rather, it's an expression to talk about each of these levels. So from tribes all the way down to families, set up a system so that the law can be applied to this people. This all is to point forward to what is to come in the second half of Exodus. In the first half, we've talked about how God makes himself known to his people. In the second half, God gives the law in order to make himself known through his people. So God makes himself known to his people. The law comes and God makes himself known through his people as they live as his holy people. So here God prepares his people for receiving the law through Jethro's instruction. And Moses responds. He responds with a great deal of humility. Moses listens to his father-in-law and does all that he says. The, the judicial structure that God gives his people, it's a blessing and a gift. And this, this can remind us of something. This is just like the structure that God gives to the church. It's a blessing and a gift. Jethro says this in verse 23. He says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And we installed deacons at our church a year and a half ago. One of the things we talked about as we looked at Acts 6 is how God gives deacons to the church to help every member experience the joy of salvation. Well, this is certainly why we have deacons. This does not mean that the rest of us are exempt from this task. This responsibility does not fall on one person or two people, but on each of us in the various roles we find ourselves in, whether it be elders or deacons or members of a church. The church is a body that exists together for the glory of God, that God may, might make himself known through his people. And so we glorify him as we encourage one another, as we remind one another of how to walk according to God's word. This is God's good plan for us. And Moses provides us with a wonderful example of respect and humility in leadership, in his leadership of the people. But that's not all we see from Moses. Now, the first half of chapter 18, it describes this meeting that took place between Moses and Jethro. Jethro meets up with Moses because at some point, Moses' wife and sons have gone back to Midian. We're not sure of any of the details around this, but all we do know is that Zipporah wasn't with Moses at this point. It's possible that that scene, Genesis, I mean in Exodus um, chapter 4, where uh, there's the bridegroom of blood and all kinds of other crazy stuff is going on, it's probable that at that point, Zipporah and her sons couldn't travel anymore. And so Moses continued on and they went back to Midian. That seems likely, but no one really knows. All that we know is that Zipporah wasn't there and she was with Jethro. So Jethro comes to Moses and he's heard of all that God has done for Moses and for Israel. So Moses comes out and he greets him and tells him more. Now, it's likely that Moses tells Jethro really the substance of what's communicated from Exodus 5 to Exodus 17. It says this in Exodus 18, verse 8. Then Moses 
told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses was, in one sense, he was sharing his testimony with Jethro. But note that the central actor in this testimony is not what Moses has done in leading the people. The main subject is, is God. Moses tells of what God has done. Even amidst the hard things they went through, Moses speaks of God's goodness amidst the hardship. Now, we can find, sometimes fall into this tendency to think of our own testimony in two parts. We've got like one terrible part, one terrible side, and then one great side. So before Christ, I was this terrible person with this terrible life. And now that the Lord has saved me, like my life is wonderful. But Moses presents us with a different example. He tells Jethro of God's deliverance, but he makes sure to emphasize all the hardship along the way. And even in the midst of great difficulty, God was faithful. We must remember this. God doesn't save us so that we can have a testimony that says, let me tell you about what God has done in my life. As if because you're a Christian, like you never face hardship. You've, you, your life is the main point. Rather, our testimony should always center on God. Let me tell you about what God has done in my life. How even in the difficulties, even in the hardships, He is good. Then look at Jethro's response to Moses' testimony. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. He goes on in verse 10, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This right here, what we see in Jethro, is a conversion story. Because of Moses' testimony of God's deliverance, Jethro becomes a part of God's people. He becomes a subject of Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is a fulfillment of one of God's primary goals in the Exodus, namely to make himself known to the nations. And God has done it. This is, this is proof that God is, is bringing to fulfillment what he's promised to do, what he's set out to do. Right here, Jethro, as a representative of the nations, as a Gentile, comes to know that the God of Israel is the God above all gods. And through this interaction, God adds a Gentile to his people. Now I want us to notice something else about Jethro in this story. Do you remember back in Genesis 14? So we're going back to Genesis, Genesis 14. We want to read Exodus in light of Genesis. There's another foreign priest that comes along right after a victory for God's covenant people. In Genesis 14, Lot has been captured. And Abram, he goes out to rescue Lot. He assembles 318 of his men and pursues Lot's captors. And he overtakes them and he brings Lot back. The next scene, the very next scene there in Genesis 14, tells us about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a righteous foreigner, a priest from Salem, and he was coming to meet Abram. Melchizedek comes, and he brings out bread and wine. Abram and Melchizedek, they share a meal. Then Melchizedek, he blesses Abraham and, and blesses God for the deliverance he has worked for Abram. Listen to what Melchizedek says in Genesis 14, verse 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram 
by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's Melchizedek. Think back, at, back to Jethro. Jethro, he's a foreign priest. Jethro, he comes to meet Moses, and they share a meal together. Jethro blesses God for the deliverance he has worked for Israel. And he blesses Moses by giving him wise counsel in leading the people. And in both the case of Abraham and Moses, the very next scene after this encounter with this foreign priest is God making his covenant with his people. Genesis 15, God makes his covenant with Abraham again. And in Exodus 19.20, we're going to see God make his covenant with Moses. Now all of these similarities, they point to the fact that Jethro is apparently another Melchizedek, another righteous Gentile. Now I think this is really cool. And maybe you do too. But you may be wondering, so what? Like, why does this matter? Well, Melchizedek, he comes back up again in the New Testament. In Hebrews 6 and 7, one of the things these chapters show is that Abraham was never meant to be the Messiah because he was blessed by Melchizedek. There's one evidence of it. Hebrews 7, 7 says that it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the little scene that unfolded with Melchizedek and Abram functions to show that Abraham, he's a submitted man. Exodus 17, verse 8 through 18, 27, this whole passage we've looked, together, looked at together, it shows us the same thing in even more striking detail. Do you remember last week when the people, they're thirsty and they get hostile towards Moses? It seems that the, the people are beginning to look to Moses as their deliverer, as their hope, as their Messiah. But Moses isn't their savior. He points forward to their true deliverer. These passages show that, that Moses, he's not the chosen one. Moses, he can't defeat Amalek on his own. So Joshua chooses men and Aaron and Hur hold up his hands. Moses can't judge the people on his own. So he appoints many men to help him judge. All of this shows that Moses was never meant to be the Messiah. But he points forward, he's a type, he points forward to a greater Messiah yet to come. All of Scripture does this. We can read the Bible as if we're looking for, for heroes sometimes. But there's only one real hero in this book. All the other ones fail in one way or another. You think about it. I mean, you think about Noah. And he goes on the ark and, and God chooses him because he's righteous. And then shortly thereafter, he is, gets drunk and is naked sleeping in his tent. And it's not good. You got Abram. And Abram, we could, there's many things we could draw from. But just the fact that Melchizedek is blessing Abram shows that Abram is inferior. Or you think about Moses. Moses, we're going to see later in Numbers how Moses doesn't believe God when God tells him to tell the rock and water will come out of it. Instead, Moses goes and strikes the rock. He doesn't trust God. Or we've got more extreme examples of, of David. And the prophet Nathan has to come and confront David because of his sin. All throughout the Bible are not very pretty pictures of people who... They, they weren't the Savior. They weren't meant to be the Savior. But in all these characters, we see that they're not the end of the story. Someone greater is still to come. And brothers and sisters, that someone came. I heard one pastor say this. He said, there are points in the Bible where we see clear declarations about who the Messiah would be. And there are points in the Bible where we intensely feel the vacuum that only he could fill. This story is the latter. Don't settle for Moses. Don't settle for Moses. So Exodus 17 and 18, after 
this incredible deliverance that God has worked through Moses. God wants everybody to know, especially the people of Israel, Moses isn't the one you're looking for. So in this first half of Exodus, it, it comes to a climax, and we see that Moses, he's not the ultimate Savior. But in Jethro, we also see that God is still at work saving. Moses' meeting with Jethro, it culminates in a meal. And it's clearly a meal intended for God's covenant people. We read this in Exodus 18.12. says this in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. As God's name has been made known to the nations, the nations represented in Jethro, they sit down for a meal. One commentator says, This is the climax because this is what endures. The dramas come and go. They live on only in the memory. But the meal continues. The presence of God continues. We get to come together each week to remember who God is, to remember what He has done for us through Jesus Christ. We do this through, through our songs and through our prayers and through the preached word, but we also do this through communion. Christ's sacrifice it brings us together as God's people, as His sons and daughters. We commune together and with Him, and we receive the grace that comes in looking to Jesus. But this meal we share together is not just about looking back at what He's done. Like Moses' meal with Jethro, it also looks forward to an even greater meal where people from every nation will gather together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And indeed, blessed are those, as Revelation 19 says, blessed are those who are invited to this meal. Brothers and sisters, recognizing God's deliverance for us, it's certainly a call to worship. But it's also a call to mission. There are still invitations to be handed out. John Piper, he's famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. So we go and tell and invite the people around us in our neighborhoods and in our families because God is so worthy to be praised. He is greater than all gods. So let our cry as a people be, let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Father, we look to you and to the one you provided to be our Savior. The Word was God and the Word with God. And the Word took on the flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, we place our, our hope in You. We look to You. And Lord, whatever we, we face, may we have faith that You are sufficient as our Savior. That You indeed are our greatest treasure. And Lord, I pray that we would have a, a passion as individuals and as a church uh, to see all the peoples praise You to see all people worship you. We, we walk around, everyone walks around as worshipers of something. We want to see people be worshipers of the one true God. Lord, may you, may you build this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.